Job chapter 11 and verse 7 says this. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? This is a rhetorical question coming from one of Job's three friends named Zophar. And he's assuming the answer is no. No, you you can't find out the deep things of God. He's using this as a way to silence Job and silence the cries of his heart. The argument is that God God is too mighty, too transcendent, and man is too limited. So how can limited man understand the ways and the wisdom of God? So Zophar is saying to Job, don't even try to reason. I don't want to hear your complaints. I don't want to hear your cries. You cannot understand God. Now, we've been examining Job for the past couple of months. We've seen the the plight that he's going under. His family destroyed, his estate gone, and his health is deteriorating. It's as if Job is groping in the darkness, trying to make sense of everything. He suffered loss, and he thinks, his friends think that they have the answers. Their answer is, uh, you've sinned, and that's why God's punishing you. But as we've seen the last few months, Job is fighting back. He's saying, no, I, I'm right with God. This, this shouldn't be. God is just. Something's wrong, and I need to talk to God. And so Zophar comes here in chapter 11 with this biting question, as though he's saying, oh, yeah, Job, you know it all, huh? You're the wise guy. You know the deep things of God? Can you really find them out? Well, this is the question that I hope to address this morning. With man's limited understanding and God's infinite wisdom, can you find out the deep things of God? Well, let us ask God for his help as we mine his inspired word. Father, We do ask, as we just sang, that you would speak to us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, speak to us through your word and give us this precious understanding and wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. As I've said before, all three of Job's friends ultimately got the answer wrong, but even in their error, they said some things that were true. And Zophar is asking a a very legitimate question. Can finite man understand the wisdom of God? We have to understand our limits if we're going to answer this question. We're human beings, right? And in one sense, we've achieved a lot. We've built skyscrapers. We've split the atom. We've sent someone to the moon. We could communicate in multiple languages. And if you follow the news now, you see the, the advances of AI Human beings can do a lot. At the same time, as human beings, we struggle to communicate to each other. We create copy machines that jam all the time. We trip and fall, and our health fails, and we've yet to find cures for several deadly diseases. A while back, I was having a conversation with a family member who's an ophthalmologist, not a believer, and we were talking about the wonder of the human eye. And if you've never taken time to examine the human eye, I would recommend doing that. And this man, who's not a believer in God and was telling us about the advancements in his field, said something to the effect of, there's just so much we don't know. 
It doesn't matter how advanced we seem to be. There's just so much we don't know. The earth is a tiny speck in the midst of a vast universe. And human wisdom only goes so far. You recognize this, right? As as we get older, our health fails, our memory fails, human strength only goes so far. We're reminded of this every day. We, We can plan your day, but ultimately you are at the mercy of the weather, of traffic patterns, of delayed flights. Human wisdom and achievement is severely limited. I came face to face with this just this past Tuesday during the snow day. I shoveled um, kind of half-heartedly, and I paid for it dearly. And as I was getting out the door with my coffee in hand and my lunch and my laptop bag ready to, to drive in the snow to a place to go work on this very sermon, I slipped, and there goes your pastor tumbling down the stairs. Um, God had mercy on me. I didn't break anything. I cut my pinky. That's, that's about it. But my point is that the snow doesn't care about any of my achievements. The snow doesn't care about any degrees that I may have earned. It doesn't care that I'm a certified teacher and an ordained pastor. And the starting pitcher for the Bayonne Little League 1996 Senior Minor Division Champions. My accomplishments mean nothing to nature. My wisdom, my strength, severely limited. We all have glimpses of this each and every day. And this comes to a head mostly when we face unexpected trials like that of Job. It really does feel like groping in the dark, like searching for your keys before the sun comes up and you don't want to turn the light on. I don't know if you've ever been to the Touch Tunnel at Liberty Science Center in Jersey City, but it's complete darkness. It's a black maze. And the only way to make it out is to touch the walls or the person's shoes in front of you because you're crawling the whole time or listen to their voice. And there's something very limiting, very vulnerable, right, about groping in the dark and not understanding and seeing no light at all. Job and his friends have this part right. They understand their limits. They understand that compared to God, we know virtually nothing. As the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Do you understand the great chasm between God and man when it comes to wisdom? Well, that's the basis of Zophar's speech to Job. Zophar is not a very good counselor. He, has, he doesn't have bedside manners. Um, he, he's, he's rather crass and rude to Job. And this is what he says here in chapter 11. And I'm going to break it down a little bit. We're just going to look at verses 1 to 12, where Zophar is telling Job, you can never figure out God. Don't even try. So here's what it says, Job chapter 11, verse 1. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered? And a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. Just focus on that for a moment. We'll come back to that. We just sang about that, didn't we? 
But Zophar is not saying this like we sang earlier as a prayer. Speak, O Lord. He's saying this cynically, sarcastically. Oh, Job, you've got it figured out. You think you're right before God. I wish God would speak to you and silence you. And he goes on to say this. And that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. He's actually saying in that verse to Job, who who suffered the loss of his kids, he's saying to Job, you deserve worse than this. How's that for um, drawing close to someone in their sorrow? And that's what leads him to say in verse 7, the title of our sermon today, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven, what can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? This is, in Zophar's world, he's giving the the biggest extremes. There's nothing higher than heaven and nothing lower than Sheol. Its measure is longer. I think I don't have the rest of that, but if you look in your Bibles in verse 9, its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn his back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. Verse 12. But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. It's basically how we say in our modern language when pigs fly. When a donkey gives birth to a human, then someone like you, Job, will understand. You'll figure it out. As one commentator says, Job is, Zophar is like the telemarketer who won't take no for an answer. Instead of offering any soothing balm for Job's suffering, Zophar pours in more vinegar. And Hartley says, with this proverb, Zophar says, there is no natural way for Job to be changed from a stupid man to a wise man. So Job answers. This is now chapter 12. What's Job's response? He just heard this sour note from his supposed friend Zophar. And Job is saying, you have some point, but God's wisdom can help me. If only I can find God's wisdom. And Job kind of, when you read this, you'll see he's a little bit biting in his response too. He says in verse 1 and 2, Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people. And wisdom will die with you. Job is like, he's like saying, oh, you're the man. You're the wise man. You, you think, I think I'm wise. You must think you're wise. And when you die, wisdom will die with you. You're so smart. But he says in verse 3, but I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? And then he goes on. I'm going to skip now to verse 12. Job offers a hymn of praise to God in the midst of his response. He says, wisdom is with the aged, and understanding in length of days. I'll stop there for a moment just so you understand um, some of the debates that scholars have here. Verse 13 is interpreted and translated differently in different Bibles. You can see here in the ESV it says, with the aged. Other translations will say, um, with the ancient. And we sang in our second uh, song today, the ancient of days. Some commentators, and I think they have a point, believe that Job is not talking specifically about older people, but he's talking about the oldest, 
the most ancient, the ancient of days. He's pointing to God Almighty. He is saying in verse 12, wisdom is with the one who is ancient. And understanding is with the ancient of days, or the one whose days are eternal. Job is agreeing with Zophar that wisdom only comes from God. But his disagreement is whether or not man can understand any of that. Verse 13 says, With God are wisdom and might. Now we might be tempted to skip over that because we hear that in the Psalms, but it's intentional. Wisdom and might. Why is that intentional? In the ancient Near East, where they had multiple gods, multiple myths, the qualities of wisdom resided in some gods and the qualities of might or power resided in other gods. So often in ancient Near East, the, the wise gods weren't very powerful. And the powerful gods weren't very wise. And since the wisest god was not the strongest god, he could be rendered inept before the ferocity of the mighty gods who would have no wisdom. I mean, can you imagine if our god was infinitely wise but not infinitely powerful? Meaning what he wants to accomplish, he cannot accomplish. Could you imagine if our God was infinitely powerful, but not infinitely wise? How much of a tyrant he would be? But what Job is saying is that unlike the, the false gods, some of whom are wise and some of whom are powerful, our God is both infinitely wise and infinitely powerful. He is wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Verse 14, if he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. It says now in verse uh, 22, he uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings darkness to light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light. He makes them stagger like a drunken man. If you look back at verse 21, for some reason it's not in my slideshow, and I apologize for that, but just go one verse back in your Bibles. Verse 21 of chapter number 12. It says, He pours contempt on princes, and loosens the belt of the strong. And I really, I, I, I was so fascinated by what he means by that. He loosens the belt of the strong. And I think in studying this, I, I, I solved an issue that I've been, it's kind of been bugging me since childhood. I was a professional wrestling fan as a child, and it's always, I've always wondered why are two guys who are wearing spandex shorts competing over a belt? That makes no sense, right? A belt? Well, belt wrestling apparently was a sport in the ancient world. I was reading the study by a man named Cyrus Gordon, and he showed that this was an ancient sport, and it was used in courts to settle disputes. Two men would wrestle, and just kind of like flag football, where the goal is to take the flag, the goal was to take the belt off of the other guy. Remove the belt from the warrior, rendering him helpless, rendering him ashamed and defeated. And I think that explains the mystery of over time, someone would take the belt and wear the belt as a symbol of pride, and that became what you see in boxing and wrestling as a championship belt. 
But the Bible says in verse 21, God pours contempt on princes and he loosens the belt of the strong. God can fight with anyone and win. He renders them powerless. So it doesn't matter who rises to power in any country, in any era, God is still more powerful is what Job is saying. God is still more mighty. God is still more wise. He loosens the belt of the strong. So we establish that God's wisdom is super powerful and infinite. Man's wisdom is finite. That presents a problem. That presents a problem that Zophar uses to hit over Job on the head like a club. But it also presents a problem to Job who's wondering, how do I figure this out? Well, the problem gets even more complicated because you and I tend to look for wisdom in all the wrong places. I think many of us know we have limits. We need understanding. We need knowledge. Where do we go? How do we find it? Well, what I think the book of Job shows us is in the, in the failure of these three friends to provide the right counsel, that ultimately human wisdom will fail. And we need to be careful where we seek for that wisdom. In chapter 2, verse 11, in Job's plight, we learn about these three men, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite. And they come from the east to, to, to counsel Job. And this is all intentional. God's word is intentional. In the ancient Near East and in the Bible, the East was often synonymous with wisdom. Uh, Where did the the Magi come from in the New Testament? From the East. And what do we often call them? The wise men. The East valued wisdom, learning, academics. And even though scholars debate precisely who these guys were, where they came from, they, they are presented to us as three wise men. Three wise men coming to tell Job, here's why you're suffering and here's what to do. And each of them highlights a different facet of where to find wisdom that if we're not careful can actually lead us astray. And they are experience, tradition, and viewpoint. Experience, tradition, and viewpoint. Now before I I dive into this, I want to make it very clear that all of these three things are very good teachers. Experience is a teacher. Tradition is a teacher. And your viewpoint is a teacher. However, they are fallible. They are limited. They must always be corrected, calibrated, adjusted by something outside of them that is infallible. And one of the mistakes that we often make is we interpret the infallible by the fallible. We bring our traditions and our experiences to the Bible when it's the Bible that should be correcting our experiences and traditions. So Eliphaz, the first one, Eliphaz, he was all about experience. His wisdom came from his supposed experience. In chapter 4, Verse 12 to 16, he tells us that a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it amid thoughts from visions of the night. When deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. 
It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before me, my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. So Eliphaz is saying that what I'm about to tell you, Job, comes from an experience that I had. An encounter. A mystical experience. Now, I don't know if the narrator of Job wants us to think that Eliphaz didn't have this experience or not. It could very well have been something that he had. It could have been a dream. It could have been a vision. But the point is, in the end of the book, we know that whatever Eliphaz told Job, God said, you're wrong. And that's really helpful for us, especially if you are prone to interpret the world around you by your experience, by your emotions, by some dream that you had, some vision that you had. It's it's completely confusing when one person has a vision and says one thing, and another person has a vision and says a completely different thing. How are we supposed to know who's right? Listen, experience is a teacher that the Lord will use for us. But our experience is limited. We interpret them with limited knowledge, limited facts. We often take dreams and visions and we, we kind of stuff them into what we already want to be true. Dear Lord, if you want me to do A or B, give me a sign. And then the lights go out for a second. doesn't necessarily mean that's the Lord giving you a sign. So brothers and sisters, we need to be very careful not to interpret the world around us only by our experiences. Experiences are limited. A second is tradition. And tradition is more what Bildad came from. Bildad gave Job advice based upon the traditions of his fathers. He says in chapter 8, verses 8 to 10, For inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday, and, I, and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? Now again, I hope you understand this, this nuance here. We're not saying that all tradition is wrong. The Bible even says in Proverbs that gray hair is a sign of wisdom. That's a general statement, isn't it? Not everybody with gray hair is wise. Not all the way we've always done things is the way we should do things. And churches will sometimes divide over these things. We've always done it this way. Doesn't mean it's right. But Bildad is saying that in order for you to understand all this, Job, you've got to go back to the traditions of your fathers. What did the ancients say? What did they say long ago? I've been part of of Christian uh, traditions that really valued what they considered the ancient paths. And sometimes those ancient paths were as ancient as the 1950s. But that's the way people always did it. That's, that's the way we always dressed for church. That's the music we always use. That's the way we've always done it. Listen, that is not an infallible guide. We could even go back to the New Testament and say, well, let's do it just like, uh, let's do it just like the New Testament does it. Let, let's have a church like Corinth. If you know anything about Corinth, that church was in shambles. So just looking at tradition, although tradition can be very valuable, is not the infallible guide to wisdom. And the third one, and this one might be a little more complicated to understand, but it's a viewpoint. The way you see your perspective, the way you see things, right? And a lot of times, this comes from truth, but it's truth that you don't quite see the layers of complication in them. See, Zophar appealed to his viewpoint. And in many ways, Zophar was right. God's wisdom is up here, man's wisdom's down here. 
But then when he says something like this to his friend, he says, but a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. means that for Zophar, he has, he has no categories beyond his limited understanding. He only understands, as one commentator says, a reasoned theology. And I would, I would challenge all of us as well who have strong viewpoints, as, as I do, as we all do. If you think, for, for, uh, by the way, that you're the only one who comes to the Bible with a neutral, clean slate, you have no traditions, no biases, you're killing yourself. You're fooling yourself, I should say. We all come to the Bible with our experience, our traditions, our biases, our preferences. We have to be willing to be challenged. When we saying, speak, O Lord, are you singing, confirm what I already believe, O Lord? Or are you actually singing, challenge me? Challenge me to apply the Bible to my life in a way that might even make me uncomfortable. We might call ourselves Calvinist or conservative or Baptist or, and these are all categories I would fit into. But my allegiance is not to those categories, but to the Word of God. And so all three of these things are good, but they fall short. Experience cannot be the ultimate teacher, but because we cannot ultimately trust our emotions of processing all we've been through. It's a fallible teacher. Tradition is a great teacher. I love looking back in the, the traditions of the church fathers and the reformers and the Puritans and our Baptist forefathers and seeing how they did it. The catechisms and all these things are great and wonderful. But they're not infallible. The whole cry of the Reformation was, you know, Martin Luther wasn't looking to, to start a new church, really. He was looking to say the church has gotten too powerful in assuming that their tradition is infallible. The only infallible thing we have is God's word. I mean, to, to, to put tradition at the same level of God's word is exactly what the Pharisees did. And then viewpoint. It's good to have a strong viewpoint, a good categories of theology. But we have to always be willing to reform. Always be willing to look at the word of God and say, you know, if my understanding here was wrong, I'm willing to change my mind. So praise God for all the wisdom that we've gleaned from experience, from tradition, from our viewpoints, but let's put them in their place. They are not God. They are not infallible. And this brings us now to Job's beautiful chapter, chapter 28, where he extols the virtues of wisdom. Chapter 28 is a very intriguing chapter of the book of Job. It's subject to a lot of debate. Because when you look at the structure of Job, you have three rounds of back and forth. Eliphaz, then Job, then Bildad, then Job, then Zophar, then Job, then back to Eliphaz, then Bildad. Well, towards the end of the book, Zophar doesn't get a third speech. Kind of wonder why with his attitude, maybe he doesn't need a third speech. So some people aren't sure exactly who wrote chapter 28. Is it Zophar? Is it Job? Is it the narrator sort of inserting a commercial break and saying, let's stop for a moment and, and talk about wisdom? But I see no compelling reason to throw off the traditional understanding that this is from Job himself declaring that wisdom is the domain of God. 
as um, Christopher Ashe said, if the whole book were read out loud, this chapter would be read in a quieter tone of voice. In a Greek tragedy, it might be read by a chorus standing at the back of the stage. Robert File says chapter 28 is the theologian's answer. And so what is so special about chapter 28? Well, we'll put it in uh, three, three um, headlines here, three, three headings. It's all about wisdom. And when I say wisdom, I mean understanding. Understanding. It celebrates wisdom. Then it tells us the limitation of wisdom. And it ends with the revelation of wisdom. Job chapter 28. The first part of Job 28, verses 1 through 11, celebrates wisdom. And it compares the finding of wisdom to the technology that humans made at that time, way before AI and skyscrapers, of finding silver inside of a mine. So as I read this, please think about what Job is saying about how precious wisdom is, as though it were silver. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air, far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but under, underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the places of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. And then moving on to verses 9 to 11. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the stream so that they do not trickle and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. Job is celebrating the human accomplishment of being able to find silver inside of the earth. And I know to us it seems probably like no big deal. We can just go to the jewelry store and there it is, right? Uh, we, we've built the Freedom Tower. We've sent men to the moon. Like, but in Job's era, this was, this was huge. To, to make shafts and to, to bring light into darkness and to go into the cave and to, and to get the silver, this, this was a huge deal. And the point that he's making here is that human beings can accomplish wonderful things through their ability to figure out how God's world works and then use that knowledge to their advantage. How much more, then, should we be searching for wisdom? How much more should we be putting our efforts into finding understanding and wisdom so that we can learn how to number our days? Well, in chapters, uh, verses 12 to 19, now Job will talk about the limits of that. He says in verse 12, But where shall wisdom be found? In other words, we did all this to find silver, where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth and is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not within me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, its precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of 
coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Wisdom. I ask you this morning, how precious is wisdom to you? Think about the material things that you and I treasure. Our cars, our houses, our technology, our phones, food, friendships. These are not bad things. But do we pour our energy into seeking wisdom? Can, can you really agree with Job and with what the Proverbs says about the preciousness of wisdom? Knowing how wisdom resides in God and how limited our understanding is, wouldn't it be or make more sense for us to every day be looking for wisdom? But I fear that's not the case. Human skill cannot find wisdom on its own. Something needs to happen. That's where we're headed this morning, to see that something needs to happen from outside of us for us to attain that wisdom. Which leads us to the third part of this, which is that God alone knows the path to wisdom. Verse 20, from where then does wisdom come? This is the second time he's asking this question. Where is the place of understanding? If I can't dig for it and I can't buy it, I've got to know where to get it. It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. When he gave the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning and thunder, then he saw it and declared it, and he established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. That's a little odd, though, isn't it? It ends like another book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes. If you know the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is talking about a lot of the same things. And he ends the book with the conclusion of the whole matter is this, fear the Lord. And Job ends this wonderful speech with the fear of the Lord. That's wisdom. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. Well, that's pretty consistent with all these Proverbs, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. The end of the matter, all has been heard. For fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In other words, there is a connection between worship of God and true wisdom. When the Bible says fear the Lord, it's not saying be scared of God, but to know that he is the infinite, holy, matchless, pure, beautiful God that can only result in our worship. And our worship is not just singing. It's a way of life. It's obedience. It's honor. It's reverence. And when you get that, it doesn't matter how many encyclopedias you know or what trivia you know or what degrees you have. When you get that, you have wisdom. Wisdom comes from a proper relationship with God. But as we said earlier, 
since we are so limited and we can't attain it ourselves, God is the one who has to make the move. And that leads me to reveal another aspect of God's character that the book of Job points us to, which is that he is the God who reveals himself. He is the God who reveals himself. And thank God that this is his nature. He is the God who communicates. He is the God who speaks. He is the God who makes himself known. If he did not do that, you and I would still be groping in the darkness. We would still be in that touch tunnel, wondering where we are, but we hear a voice. We see a light, and it doesn't come from us. It comes from without, outside of us. It comes from God himself. So back when, when uh, Zophar said sarcastically to Job, oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, brothers and sisters, he has. He has spoken. This is the great climax of the book of Job. In chapter 38, one of my favorite verses Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said. Just think about that for a moment. He answered Job. God is under no obligation to answer Job. God is under no obligation to speak. But the whole point of this book is to show that God is invested in Job all along. And at the right time, he will make himself known. God has made himself known. He reveals what was previously hidden. He shines light into our darkness. He comes near to us and he speaks. God speaks. He speaks in his word. He speaks to his prophets. He communicates his attributes through nature. God answers Job because God is the one who reveals himself. I think I mentioned this in the first or second sermon. That song, Where Were You by the band Ghost Ship, which is about the book of Job, ends with the line, although I had no right to ask, my God knelt and answered me. Do you understand? When you really get how high and lofty God's wisdom is and how limited we are, do you understand just how privileged you are that God would speak to you? It is something we ought to thank God for every day. As the Bible says in Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. That doesn't mean that God will tell you everything you ever wanted to know. When I was a kid, I I believed and kind of still hold out hope that when we get to heaven, somewhere in between singing, there'll be a break. We'll go into a big room, there'll be a movie screen. And we'll see the dinosaurs and we'll see like everything that we never could figure out. I I hope that's the case. But at the end of the day, you're not going to know everything you need to know. Everything you want to know. But everything you need to know of how to have a relationship with God, God has revealed to us. When we were in darkness, he turned on the light. When we had no ears to hear, he spoke to us and he gave us ears to hear. He is the God who draws near. He is the God who speaks. He is the God who's given us his word. He is the God who reveals himself. He doesn't have to answer, but he does. He takes initiative and then he gives us his wisdom. Every word of God is pure. Every word that comes out of his mouth is wisdom for us. 
so that you don't have to be in the darkness, so that you can have understanding. The incomprehensible God has made himself known. Think about it. The Bible calls him incomprehensible, and yet he makes himself known. Two things are true at the same time. You're never going to exhaust the riches of his wisdom. And that's why we worship him, because we will never figure him out. But it doesn't mean that because we can't figure him out, that we are driven to despair and in darkness, because he gives us exactly the light that we need. The incomprehensible God has made himself known. And he has done this throughout history, through his prophets, through creation, through types like the ark, through his commandments, through our conscience. Romans 1 tells us his attributes are clearly seen so that everyone's without excuse and most, mostly through his word. And that's why this, this verse that we all memorize as children means so much. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The opposite of darkness is light. Are you in darkness right now? Do things not make sense to you right now? Do you wonder where I can get wisdom? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God has made himself known. God reveals himself. God has given us wisdom when we could not find wisdom on our own. And most especially, God reveals himself through his son, Jesus Christ. In order for us to close the loop that Job points us to, we have to take a good look at our Savior. Because every time I come to Job, I'm, I'm encouraged by how it points me to another aspect of Jesus that solves the riddle that's brought out through the trials of Job. Jesus is the revealed wisdom of God. When the disciples said to Christ, show us the Father, what did he say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. To know Christ is to know God because Christ is God. I love what the writer of Hebrews says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by, by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you want light in your world? Do you want understanding and wisdom? Do you want to hear from God, know God? You have it all in Christ. This is how God speaks to us. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He's the Word. He's the living Word. When you know Christ, you have wisdom. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Colossians tells us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. Listen, when you, when you think about what Job said in chapter 28, man has, has expended so much time and technology to look for silver and gold, right? And, and, and yet wisdom is, is beyond that price. And how can we find wisdom and how can we... He, he's, he's onto something, right? In the New Testament, we come to Christ and we find there it is. There's wisdom. Wisdom is wrapped up in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you know Christ, you have full access to all the wisdom that God would want to give to you. 
If you don't have Christ, it doesn't matter how smart you are, how intellectual you are, you don't have wisdom. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. In his commentary, Matthew Henry says this, kind of wraps up everything we've been saying. God is unsearchable. The ages of his eternity cannot be numbered, nor the spaces of his immensity measured. The depths of his wisdom cannot be fathomed, nor the extent of his power bounded. The brightness of his glory can never be described, nor the treasures of his goodness counted. This is a good reason why we should always speak with, of God with humility and caution and never prescribe to him or quarrel with his dispensations, why we should be thankful for what he has revealed of himself and long to be there where we shall see him as he is. And I ask this morning, are you thankful for what God has revealed of himself? The incomprehensible, unsearchable God has given us the light and the knowledge we need, which in this life is only a glimmer of the fullness that we will see one day when we see him face to face. So I leave you with these four points of application. If God's wisdom is this valuable, if we as human beings cannot attain it on our own, but yet in Christ he's given us his wisdom, then it gives us at least four ways to apply that to our lives. At least four. It's probably more than that. Number one, receive God's wisdom. Number two, seek after God's wisdom. Number three, treasure God's wisdom. And fourthly, proclaim God's wisdom. Number one, receive God's wisdom. What I mean is this. I'm addressing those who have never come to Christ. You're not going to get to heaven. You're not going to have your sins forgiven. You're not going to unshackle the bondage that you're in by your mere intellect, by your, by your accomplishments, by your achievements, by your education, by your degrees, or by ever figuring things out. That will only get you so far. You must receive God's wisdom, who is Jesus Christ. The uh, church father, Augustine, in his confessions, when he was, say, Augustine in his early years lived a very um, sinful life. Listen to his testimony and how he compares his salvation to going from darkness to light. He says, I was weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when I heard the voice of children from a neighboring house chanting, take up and read, take up and read. I could not remember ever having heard the like, so checking the torrent of my tears, I arose interpreting it to be no other than a command from God to open the book and read the first chapter I should find. Eagerly then I returned to the place where I had laid the volume of the apostle. I seized, opened, and in silence read the section on which my eyes first fell, quote, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in licentiousness and lewdness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. No further would I read, nor did I need to. For instantly, at the end of this sentence, it seemed as if a light of serenity infused into my heart and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. This is 
Augustine's conversion story. He was in darkness. He was in travail. He was in sorrow, weighed down by his sin. And he opened up the book of God's wisdom and read one sentence from the book of Romans and God turned the light on, turned his life around. I think we can relate to that when we sing um, this song, And Can It Be, written by Charles Wesley. I love this line, which says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Mine eye diffused a quickening ray. That's a ray of sunshine. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I pray for everyone in this room, anyone listening on live stream, that if you are still in darkness, that God would, would bring his quickening ray into your life and he would open up your eyes and you would follow him. Receive God's wisdom in the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, for those of us who, who have received God's wisdom, I would encourage you to seek after God's wisdom. Seek after God's wisdom. You may have heard this quote by C.S. Lewis where he says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. And I think it's the same with wisdom. If we're only looking to get wisdom to make ourselves smarter, we're going to fall on our faces. We're going to fall down the stairs. But if we are seeking God, the fear of God, worship of God, we will get wisdom thrown in. So seek God. Seek him with your whole heart. Seek him while he may be found. Seek his word. How much more after hearing the, the agony of Job answered by Christ should we who believe in Christ be more eager to search the scriptures for wisdom every day? Filter everything you know by the revealed knowledge of God. Your viewpoint needs to be challenged by God's word. Your traditions by God's word. Your experience by God's word. Make God's word your priority because this is the inspired scripture. This is the light and it's been given to you. So seek after it. Know it. Love it. Treasure it. Not, not in, don't get you know, caught up in, in the latest trends and politics and culture and your emotions and all of these things. There's a place for that. But brothers and sisters, where are we pouring our energy? God has given us his wisdom. Let's seek after that wisdom. And having sought after his wisdom then let us treasure his wisdom. Let us not take his wisdom for granted. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just as God spoke the world into existence, let there be light. When you came to Christ, it's as though he did that to you. He said to your dark and rebellious heart, let there be light. And you arose. If you are in Christ today, it's not because you're smarter than your unsaved loved ones. The Bible even says there are not many wise who are called. You and I are recipients. We are recipients of his teaching, recipients of his light, recipients of his wisdom. That is what gives us worship. That is what makes us fall down and worship the holy, infinite, unsearchable God because he has made himself known to us. To answer Zophar's question, can you find out the deep things of God? The answer is, no, not all the deep things of God. But God has given enough of himself to me. And that is sufficient. Finally, let me challenge you to proclaim God's wisdom. If you're a recipient of God's wisdom, you have the word of God, 
you have the Lord Jesus, then what are we doing if we don't then proclaim that to the lost and dying world? The world around us is in darkness. This is why they can't tell their left from their right. The world is in bondage to sin. The world is groping in the dark. It gives new meaning then when Jesus said that we are lights in this world. We are lights in this world. You are a light in this world. Are you turning the light on for those in darkness? Not because you're smarter, but because you're a recipient of his wisdom. Let's now therefore go and bring wisdom to others. In Acts chapter 8, Philip is brought to an Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the word of God from the book of Isaiah, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how can I unless someone guide me? And you in this room, you may feel like, well, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a deacon, I'm not a theologian, I didn't go to seminary. Listen, if God has given you his wisdom, if you can communicate the gospel, that God is holy, that man is a sinner condemned by God, that Jesus Christ is perfect God and man who lived an obedient life and died on the cross for our sins and on the third day rose again, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life, if you can communicate that, you have more wisdom than those with PhDs who don't know God. So what are we doing sitting on our hands? Let's bring that wisdom to this world. Let's show them the light God will use. Imagine if all of us were determined to be lights in the darkness of our jobs and our neighborhoods and our families. God would be pleased to draw people to himself. It's a beautiful thing and it's a responsibility we have, but it's a joyful responsibility. And I want to challenge you, church, as we move into this next year and you know, with, with um, another pastor, with an outreach coordinator, as, as we have more opportunities for you to be involved in corporate evangelism, don't take that for granted. Don't take that for granted. Let us determine to reach North Arlington and the rest of our communities with the light of God's wisdom so they can be brought from darkness to light. And then together with other people coming into our midst, we can worship God together as Paul did in Romans 11. And we can say this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Please take some time now before the Lord and ask him to search your heart as you prepare for the rest of our service.
Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you have made yourself known to us. You've revealed yourself. You've given us your word. You've given us your son. Help us to receive your wisdom, to treasure your wisdom, to seek after your wisdom, and to proclaim your wisdom. I pray, Lord, that you would make us a church of lights, having received the light from you, that we would then light the path of others, not through our own strength or our own intellect, but through your word. So, Father, we pray you would receive all the honor and all the glory in the name of Jesus. Amen.